0: So, tonight, we're going to talk about the battle, the fight. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is by a guy named Robert Murray McShane. I got this from his biography, which I read in college, and it affected me profoundly, so much so that I um, talked my wife into naming our middle child, Cooper, sorry, our middle child, our firstborn child, (laughs) middle name McShane which is quite a strange name. I'm not sure he even knows how to spell it. Uh, Cooper McShane, uh, twit. Um, Robert Murray McShane said this. I think this is very helpful pastorally. He says the Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. That you're known by your warfare as much as by your peace. Now, that's really helpful, because I know a lot of people that think that once you become a Christian, the battle is over. I mean, the Bible does speak about how, by nature, we are at enmity, we're at warfare with God. But when God saves us through Christ, those of, who were enemies are now made friends, and even more, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Galatians chapter 4 were made the very children of God. And yet, Dan Allender, great Christian counselor, um, talked about this, and I, I posted this quote, I think, on Twitter. Um, I love this. He says, Christians often assume our conflict with God was finished when we were converted. At that point, we were enemies of God. Indeed, we were, and it was a great battle. But the battle is not over with conversion. Though it is the decisive victory that assures the outcome of the war, it is hardly the last and final fight. Sanctification, and we're going to talk about that tonight, is a lifetime process of surrendering as more and more intense conflicts with God and others expose and dissolve our urgent preoccupation with the self. A lament is the battle cry against God that paradoxically Voices a heart of desire and ironic faith in his goodness. It's from an article uh, by Dan Allender my wife shared with me today. He's he's a great counselor, and uh, in that article he talks about why we need to sing songs like beams of heaven that we sang. These songs that speak honestly about the brokenness and still even crying out, How long, O Lord, cry out to God? The key with lament is the direction of the cry, And keeping the heart open to the surprise of God, rather than coming to quick conclusions that nothing will ever change. Well, as we get into this section here in Galatians, we're going to talk about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of times this battle has been misconstrued uh, in Christian circles. And so uh, I hope that this will be helpful tonight. This is um, we're going to talk about sanctification. We're going to talk about mortification of sin. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. It's a great old Puritan word. Mortification means to put to death sin, to mortify. So let's look at our passage. It's in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to pick up with verse 13. I know we're going to, I'm going to read about the fruit of the Spirit. We're not going to talk about that much this week. We're going to talk about that more next week. The Apostle Paul says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So Paul's talking here about this conflict, this contrast. I don't know about you, but uh, when I was first explained the gospel, I was promised peace with God. I wasn't promised conflict. And yet, as you begin to read the Bible you find that the Bible promises a lot of conflict for people who are Christians. Yes, we have peace with God, but we also have the beginning of conflict. Yes, we have freedom. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says it's for freedom. You've been set free, but we've been set free to struggle. We've been set free to take up our arms and to battle against the flesh. Well, What does all this mean? Sometimes Christians throw around these words like flesh and sin, and spirit, and I used sanctification and mortification a few minutes ago, and you're like, yeah, I've heard those words. I don't know really what that means. I hope that we'll come to some understanding here tonight, because this is an important, important thing. Now, there's a Greek word that's difficult to translate. The old King James Version, which people used for hundreds of years, translates this Greek word. The Greek word is sarx. And the the old um, translation, the King James, translated "sarks" everywhere as "flesh." Okay, the New International Version, which is the version that I'm most familiar with and read most of the time, translates that word "sarks" always and everywhere "sinful nature." It's actually a little more complicated than that. Sometimes that word does refer to our physical flesh, and even the, as I read it here, it talks about don't indulge the flesh, and you may get the idea that when it says don't indulge the flesh, and I think a lot of Christians have thought this, a lot of people have thought this is what the Bible's teaching, that means don't do anything that you would enjoy, like with your physical body. But that's not what Paul means in this context here by flesh. How do we know that? Well, when you go down and you look at the acts of the flesh in verse 19, some of them envy, ambition, jealousy. These are not physical things you do with your body. So Paul is not talking merely about your body. He means more than that. Yes, some of them obviously are things that involve your body. It's hard to have an orgy without your body, right? But I think we would be wrong to think that flesh is a denunciation of physical pleasure, But I think that a lot of times people think of Christianity that way. I think that's one of the most deeply held misunderstandings about Christianity, is that it is anti-pleasure, anti-physical. But That's not what Paul means here. What Sarx means is is this idea of opposition to honoring God in all of your life. Tim Keller puts it this way. It's the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. In other words, what the Bible says is before Christ comes into your life, well, the way the Bible says it clearly in Genesis chapter 6 is all the desires of man were only evil all the time. It's pretty strong. Romans chapter 3 says it as well. There are none who seek God, no one who understands. All of us, like sheep, have went astray. But when Christ comes into your life, this heart that was dead and opposed to God and his ways gets renewed, is made alive. But when it's made alive, it sets up this great battle. Previously, when you were dead there wasn't a battle. And this is why Robert McShane says that. He says, a lot of times people think that not having any any kind of conflict in their life is a good sign. Well, it may be a sign of a completely seared conscience. Being a Christian does not mean that you don't have any internal struggles and battles. As a matter of fact, what this passage teaches is you should expect that. Because while you have been renewed, you're not perfectly new yet. Maybe one of the best, like, succinct ways that you can see this is over in the book of Colossians, where um, Paul tells the Colossians, this is another of his letters in the New Testament, to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of the Creator. He says you're, that we've put on the new self, so there's something definitive, and we'll talk about this tomorrow if you come to my theology uh, time. There's something definitive, something really big happened when you became a Christian. You didn't just become beautiful in God's sight. Your heart that was dead has been made alive, but it's not yet been made perfect. So you have put on the new self. Something decisive happened. God didn't just change his mind about you. Christianity teaches that he changed you when you become a Christian. But this change is not done yet. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So if you feel schizophrenic, you're in good company. That's what Christians feel like. They do. And and Paul talks here about this battle. Now, he also talks about the Spirit, and this is also a little complicated because there are a few places where it's clearly, he's saying, walk by the Spirit, and and the translations aren't helpful in capitalizing it. You know, in the Greek, they, they don't have the capitalization like that. So that's the editor and the translator's opinion. But when you look carefully at what he's saying... It seems that the Spirit is not external, it's inside of you that he's talking about. And so I, I think that what he's talking about here is not the Holy Spirit outside conflicting with your flesh inside of you. He's talking about an internal struggle all the way. He's talking about an internal struggle. When he talks about the flesh desires, desires what is contrary to the spirit, he's talking about something that's going on inside of you. Now, this might be confusing you're like, well, Kevin, it says spirit. But I will say, I think another thing that's often misunderstood, when the Bible uses spiritual as an adjective, it doesn't mean spiritual as opposed to physical. It never means that. When the Bible uses the term spiritual as an adjective, it means having to do with the Holy Spirit or being created or generated or renewed by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul here is talking about the Spirit, he's talking about the part of you that's been renewed by the Spirit. And if you look down in verse 17, he says these things are in conflict with each other. And look at the end of verse 17, so that you are not to do or not able to do whatever you want. So here's what he's saying that there, there is this, in the renewed person, the person who has come to faith in Christ, who God has really changed their life, there now is this conflict between the part of you that still desires sin and still desires to fight against God and his ways, and yet there's this other part of you that's been renewed, that's been healed, that is fighting against that. There's this conflict going on, but the deepest, truest part of you, if you're a Christian, is to want to do will of God. But it's not like you just flip a switch and everything's different. It's like you've been made alive, but you still have this powerful battle going on. And I suspect if you're a Christian, you know that without me having to tell you that. The problem though sometimes is people tell you or they describe what it means to be a Christian very differently, inadequately. One of the things I like to tell people a lot, because I think you need to get this, you know, down deep in your soul, is that when somebody misdescribes normal, it really messes you up. When when somebody misdescribes normal and they say, well, it's normal that you're just flying high with Jesus all the time. If somebody tells you that's the normal experience of a Christian, then you wonder if you're a Christian at all. Everyone in this room would probably wonder. And yet there are a lot of people, a lot of songs, a lot of sermons, a lot of blogs, a lot of tweets that misdescribe normal. And it's damaging. The picture we get here is conflict. That's actually good news. Because I suspect if you're a Christian here, then you probably already knew that. But you maybe didn't feel free to ever let people know that that's what you're experiencing. It's so important that you find a community that rightly understands that's the normal Christian life. And if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, man, I'm glad you're here. And I I think this is a good place to be, because I think that we understand what the Bible is teaching here that's so important, which is the normal Christian life is full of struggle. So it's important to see this battle. Now, it's also important to see a really important thing about this battle. And it's this word that Paul uses. Again, it's a word that's hard to translate into English. It's in verse 16. Um, Here it says, in my translation, it says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh if you walk by the Spirit. So so my translation here has desires. The old King James for this word is lusts. With a S, I can't really pronounce that very well. L-U-S-T-S, lusts. So again, we've got this problem. If you use the old King James, the old lusts, it makes it seem like everything's about sex because that's how we understand that word. That's not what it meant in King James English, but that's how we understand it. So then other translations use the word desires, but again, that makes it seem like the problem is you have desires, and it makes it seem like Christianity is really Buddhism where the goal is to get rid of your desires, to not have any desires at all. That's not Christianity. It may seem spiritual, it's not Christianity. The word here is not just desires, the word is epithumia, which means over-desires. Thumia means desires, but putting that little epi on it means over-desires. And that's important. It's also the same word down in verse 24 those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what it's saying is we are to put to death, crucify, or again, the old King James word, which I love in this case, mortify, mortify the flesh, meaning the inner part of you that's still fighting God. That's what he's talking about here. And what's interesting is when you look at verse 16 And verse 24, you find something very interesting. Because he talks about here, um, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, right? And then down in verse 18, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So if you remember your algebra, what he's he's saying here is, is that not gratifying the desires of the flesh and not being under the law are the same thing. There are two ways of saying the th- same thing. Now, why is that helpful? Well, here's why it's helpful. See, I talk to students a lot who might say, you know, that they're struggling with a particular sin, right? Sometimes we meet for coffee and we talk about this. And sometimes I'll say, well, you know, are, you know how's that going? You know, you told me about this last time we met. How's that going? They say, well, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. And sometimes if, if I want to mess with people... But I think in a pastorally helpful way, I'll say, well, what exactly are you doing to work on it? What does working on it mean? And most people don't really have any idea. Like, working on it for a Christian is like this Christian speak that means, well, I think about it a lot, and I feel really bad about it. It's kind of true, because we don't really understand the nature of the battle. But, But in this section here, we actually have some really important insights that will help us actually know what to do how to fight against sin at the root. And and, and part of it is this key here, seeing that under law, not being under law, and not gratifying the desires of the flesh are parallel expressions, helps us understand that what the flesh wants to do is to save itself. In other words, the law, being under the law, as, as Paul has been talking about in Galatians, means trying to save yourself to be your own Savior, rather than trusting in God and His grace and His provision. That's what it means to be under law. It means that you're still trying to justify yourself to God. And if you're doing that, you're also gratifying the desires of the flesh. So what does that mean? Well, it means that what the flesh is all about is saying, no, thank you, God, I don't need a Savior, I can take care of this myself. And then when you look at the list here, the, the, the list of the acts of the flesh, you know, it's really interesting. Some of them are the deeds and the acts of the irreligious. And some of them are more the deeds and the acts of the religious. And you remember I, I talked about last week, Paul says, if you become circumcised, you kind of take on this religious ritual, you're becoming enslaved again. And he's saying that to people who didn't have an understanding of Christianity. So they were, they were irreligious people, according to the way the Bible understands the true God. And now they've become, you know, religious, and they're trying to do all these religious things. And Paul says, they're both slavery. They're both ways, he says here in verse, you know, 18, 19, 20, they're both ways of serving the flesh. What's the heart of the flesh is about saying to God, I don't need you. You know, Flannery O'Connor said that, right? That people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. That's what a lot of Christians are like. They don't want to have to be dependent upon God. I, I know it's so kind of messed up, but I know people that they're like, well, I just want to become so good at this Christian thing that I won't really have to, to pray to God or ask God to help me. I really hate feeling so needy all the time. You know, I want to get really good at like having my quiet time so consistent and being able to do this and do that. And it's really like two ways of trying to save yourself. One is to say, I don't need a savior because I can keep all the rules. The other is to say, I don't need a savior because I don't need anybody to tell me how to live. But at the heart, there are two different ways of avoiding Jesus and avoiding coming to grips with the reality that we're deeply needy people. Christianity was about is always about restoring the original created order, which is that we would be dependent upon God. He's God, and we are created to be in this beautiful relationship with him, where we trust him, where Adam and Eve walked with him in the cool of the day. That's what it's about. And it's not about becoming so self-sufficient that you don't need God anymore. That's why we're told to ask for daily bread in the prayer. Don't give us so much bread that we never have to ask you again. That's not what we're told, right? There's actually this amazing verse in the Psalms, um, which actually guided the Jews more often to pray after meals. There's a little prayer in the Psalms that says, Lord, help us to not forget you when our bellies are full. I wonder what your life would be like if you actually prayed that after meals or after things went well. Do you ever pray after things go well? Not just thank you, but Lord help us not to help me not to forget you. Now that I don't actually think I really need you. That's what's go, that's what he's talking about here. Inordinate desires. Inordinate desires to save ourselves and to not be dependent upon god you know paul equates gratifying the desires of the sinful flesh with being under law that means these inordinate desires don't just come out of the blue they're connected to our rejection of the gospel salvation for salvation and they're connected to our wanting to justify ourselves before god tim keller puts it this way when a good thing becomes our god or salvation it created over-desires. Thus, Paul says that sinful desires become deep things that drive and control us. Sin creates within us this feeling that we must have this or that. Unless he loves me, I will die. I remember a friend of mine years ago talking about a, friend, a mutual friend of ours, um, and they had gotten a divorce, And I remember we were just driving the car one time. He goes, man, Kevin, I don't know. If I was ever married and, and that happened to me, I think I would just die. And I've had lots of friends who've gotten divorced, and it's horrible. And sometimes I get to the point where I'm just praying that they don't lose Jesus in the midst of losing the marriage. Because while it's horrible, it's not the worst thing. It's not the worst now, I know that's hard. Some of you have experienced and still experience the wreckage of that. It's horrible. Hear me say that clearly, right? But God can meet you in the middle of it. If you lose God, you lose everything. And that's what Paul is, is going to say. What, what is it that you would say, you know what, if, if it came down to it, god or losing this thing i would give up god rather than lose this thing well that's kind of the biblical definition of an idol and and the idols then create these lies i've heard them called delusional fields once you begin to believe in one lie that i have to have this thing or i'm going to die then all these other lies like surround it, and you begin to think, well, if I'm exposed as being weak or inadequate, then, you know, then I have no worth or no value. That if I can't succeed at this, then I'm worthless. All these kinds of lies multiply, but they're all connected to this false trust. And, and it leads to, you look at this list of the acts of the flesh, and they all kind of fit into this self-salvation matrix, they do. Some of them are trying to get the joy and the, and the love of the Holy Spirit, idolatry, witchcraft, debauchery, sexual immorality. Others are more connected with kind of the self-righteousness that comes from feeling like you've saved yourself, and yet and seeing the insecurity. See, there's one thing we know. If you're if you're trusting in yourself in any sort of way, you're very fragile. You're very fragile. And and the kinds of things that they list here, dissensions, rage, jealousy, envy, those are the things that come out of the insecurity of trusting in yourself rather than trusting in Jesus. And you see then what the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit are actually true humanity restored. Because this right relationship where you're trusting in God and his provision is, is, is beginning to transform you from the inside out. Now, we'll talk more about that um, when we talk about the spirit a little more. But here's what's one of the, the coolest things in this whole passage is verse 17. And, and we, you might have missed it whenever you've read this before, but I want to go back there and look at this. So the spirit, the spirit, he says, has desires. See this? The flesh has desires that are contrary to the spirit, but the spirit has desires that are contrary to the flesh. Have You ever thought about that? This is a profound statement because it means that you're not alone in this battle. Now, John chapter 16, Jesus says that the the goal of the Spirit, you want to know what the Holy Spirit is about? Jesus tells us in John 16, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. The goal of the flesh is to glorify you and to glorify me. It couldn't be any more clear. The deeds of the flesh come out of wanting to glorify you, wanting to be self-sufficient, wanting to take the crown off of Jesus' head, but what the Spirit wants is for Jesus to be glorified and for you to put all of your hope and trust in Him, not just once, but over and over and over again. To live by the Spirit is very much like what we talked about uh, earlier in this chapter, eagerly awaiting the righteousness that is ours eagerly awaiting it, tasting it, like letting your mouth water as you anticipate this beautiful banquet that you're going to celebrate one day with Jesus, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here it's talking about the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means kind of getting in line with the thing that the Spirit is all about, and what the Spirit is all about is glorifying Jesus. So it's the same kind of thing. It's just saying it in another way. This is a reason why God gives us things like community, the scriptures, worship, prayer. They're all about fanning into flame this desire, which is in you, if you're a Christian, the truest, deepest part of you, to glorify God. But sometimes it gets lost in all the other stuff that's in there. And and so the Puritans used to talk about mortifying sin, they used to talk about mortification and vivification. Mortify means to put to death the sinful desires. And how do you do that? You reject and you look at how is this thing that I'm doing, these fits of rage, flowing out of a desire to avoid Jesus. And you come and you say, Jesus help me see how this is connected to wanting to be my own savior. These fits of rage don't come out of the blue. They, they come because something that I'm trusting in is threatened and I've got to lash out to protect it. Or something that I want is being blocked because I think I need to have it. And if I can't have it, I can't live. Fits of rage don't come out of nowhere. But you won't really do much in the battle if all you do is try to squelch fits of rage without getting at what is the self-salvation goal that's underneath that? Why is it that that bothered me so much? Why is it that I feel like I have to have that or I will die? Because here's the thing, guys. If you're a Christian, whatever you're trying to get through your flesh, you already have in the gospel. And the only way you're going to quit needing to get these things and grasp these things is by realizing and sensing, even on your heart, the beauty of what you already have. You're trying to find peace and joy? You have it. The creator of all things rejoices over you with singing. Did you read that verse? In the call to worship in Zephaniah 3, the Lord our God rejoices over you with singing. You know what? If she doesn't think you're so cool, you'll survive. (laughs) If he doesn't think you're awesome, you'll survive. The Lord your God rejoices over you with singing right now, tonight. That doesn't mean that you don't need other people in your life, right? Even when sin wasn't in the world, God said it's not good to be alone, but you have to do battle against the sinful desires by being reminding and rejoicing in the things you already have in the gospel. Now I put some little quotes down here. This is called mortification. And this is how you deliberately work on the root of sin by gratefully remembering who God is and what he's done for us. And using this truth... To kill the lies that hold us in the grip of these epi-desires, these over-desires. Here's here's the way, maybe a sample prayer. Pray like this. Lord, I think I need this for life. But you tell me that your love is better than life. Help me to believe that and desire that more than the pseudo-life that this idol is offering me. Help me to soak in the reality of what you did for me, dying in my place, something no idol could or would ever do. Thank you for your love that would save even one such as me in spite of my adulterous heart. That's when you're actually not just feeling bad about the things that you do, but you're beginning to try to get to the root and get the gospel connected to the root. The gospel the beauty of what Jesus did, sensed in the heart in a way that helps you begin to let go of the things you're clinging to for life. That's what Paul's talking about here. I put some quotes down there from John Owen. I'm not going to read them, but I'll talk about them tomorrow if you want to come, or we can get coffee and we can talk more about mortification of sin. Now, I do want to say something about this, verse 24. When it talks about crucifying the flesh, again, that's the old King James language here. In this translation, it says crucifying the flesh as well. What does that mean? Again, this is one of those things that um, people are like, oh, there's those Christians again, you know, the, the flagellating themselves and beating themselves up so that they think that God would take pity on them. Well, that's not what's talking about here. To crucify the flesh is not to beat yourself up or deny yourself bodily pleasure. As a matter of fact, the same Paul who wrote this wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, his letter to Timothy, his kind of protege, he said, it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from marriage and certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. The Bible is not anti-pleasure. It's not. It's actually pro-true pleasure that lasts. And when it says here, crucifying the flesh, it's talking about getting at these self-salvation schemes that are producing all of the acts of the flesh that it's talking about here. Crucifying the flesh is not just beating up your body. This is why the Reformers were actually opposed to giving up things for Lent, for instance, which a lot of people still think seems very spiritual, but is worth pondering. Is Christianity about reducing bodily pleasure. I think there's a case to be made that it's not about that at all. Now, other people have said, well, crucifying the flesh just means using your willpower to say no. But Christianity is not stoicism. Crucifying the sinful nature means actually and somewhat counterintuitively learning to rejoice and trust in the thing that the spirit is focusing on which is the work of Christ and the glory of Christ. The way to fight as a Christian is to use the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit by giving glory to Jesus for everything he is and everything he's done. Thus, worship is actually the key to fighting against sin, because worship is the key to who you are. I think so often we try to to figure out why we are the way we are, and we think about, well, it's you know, it's my feelings or it's my thinking. In actuality, your worship is at the core of both of those things. What you're worshiping is affecting how you feel. I wouldn't say that it's everything, because I think there's physical, me- mental, all this kind of stuff going on. But worship is deeper than what you think and what you feel. And it's deeper than what you do. Because it's what you were made for at the core of your being. And it's also the path of healing. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 3 that we'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon the Lord's glory. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. The cross and the way the cross shows both the mercy of God, the trustworthiness of God, All the things that make you feel that God can't be trusted are answered at the cross. And that's why that's where our focus is to be. Like I said, so many people have no idea how to fight against sin. You need to understand something about the gospel, about what Jesus did, but you need to go beyond that to actually rejoicing in it and enjoying it and relishing it. Because that's when it begins to enter into the deep places of your heart where you struggle. Every one of us has certain ways that we struggle to believe the gospel is really as good as it is. And one of the deepest ways that you can help your friends is to start to understand where the places they regularly forget the goodness of God or the sufficiency of the gospel, and how can you be God's instrument to help them know he's better and more faithful and more trustworthy than you realize. Well, we're going to talk some more about the fruit of the Spirit. But I I hope that this is helpful to understand this battle. Because it really is a battle. And it really is about having true humanity restored. It's not just about, you know, making you into this, like, perfect little person that never steps out of line who's kind of boring and whatnot. No, it's about a truly beautiful life. You think about the fruit of the Spirit and and bearing these sorts of things. These things all come out of a deep, abiding satisfaction with the trustworthiness of God and the sufficiency of the work of Jesus to make you beautiful in His sight to where you don't need to dress yourself up. If that's impacting you in the deepest places of your heart, this kind of stuff will begin to be the way you are. Let's pray together.